listeners of Nashville CA, we realized after recording three episodes, maybe we should introduce ourselves. <laughs> so hello, so, everybody. So hi. We're really doing this ass backwards. <laughs> it only came to our attention after someone else mentioned it. Yeah. So who are you guys? Also, it's funny because I barely know you. This is true. <laughs> we definitely need a getting to know you episode. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm Sean. That's Josh over there. As the title suggests of our podcast, Josh lives in Nashville and I live in California. And um, we met through the With Gorley and Rust Discord that we're both a part of. And our first time ever hanging out was on our friend George's podcast, The Best Little Horror House in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But there was 12 people on that podcast or something. It was, it was madness, but it was really, really fun. And so, Josh, you and I talked, I think, about eight and a half first. Yeah, I think kind so. Kind of like our first point. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, watching it, and you had wanted to watch it, so we we conversed about that a little bit. And then we both happened to be hanging out on March 14th, Pi Day. <laughs> we both decided it would be a good idea to watch Pi on Pi Day, and that was the that was the birth of this podcast. That makes sense. If if you guys look at the next episode, you'll realize that we did not do any extra work. We just put those two films into the first episode. <laughs> no, we got real lucky that those two movies actually paired well together. Yes. Um, but yeah, so Josh, yes, we've done a few episodes of the show, but I feel like I barely know you at all. How'd you get into horror movies? Horror movies? Uh, specifically have been something like I've always had from the time I was a little kid. Uh, my parents were very permissive when I was a child. And so my mom showed me stuff like Psycho and Jaws really early on. Uh, and I got into that kind of stuff. And horror in general, um, I got into Stephen King like in middle school. And it was one of those classic stories where I got in trouble for reading Stephen King in middle school when other kids weren't even reading. And my parents came down and talked to the to the guidance counselor, and they were like, at least he's reading a book. Like, let him have this. Do you remember which book it was? I, I want to say it was Pet Cemetery. Uh, well, that's a good one. Yeah. That'll fuck you up as a kid, huh? Oh, yeah. That's great. How old were you? I was probably seventh grade at that point. So however old you are in seventh grade. Thirteen or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. I never really got into King. I, I've read The Shining and Running Man and I think one or two of his other books. I can't quite recall. Mm -hmm. And some of his, you know, it's kind of like Clive Barker. Uh, some of his adaptations on screen are great and others are completely watered down and terrible. See, it's kind of a real grab bag with them. Oh, definitely. And uh, my favorite Stephen King book is uh, Salem's Lot, which is probably my second favorite book of all time. It's definitely one I've revisited the most. Um, right behind East of Eden by Steinbeck. So I've got real dichotomy going on there. Wow. Uh, I'll be honest, I've never read or seen Salem's Lot, and I know nothing about East of Eden, except I imagine it's about labor rights during the Dust Bowl. <laughs> Am I right? Nope, not at all. <laughs> well, I was hoping that Steinbeck would uh, repeat his Grapes of Wrath success yes. for a second time. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you take a risk, sometimes you don't. <laughs> but, uh, so what about you? What about, it was horror your gateway into movie love overall, or? No, no, I... I don't know where my movie love comes from. I just remember as a kid, um, I remember getting like Terminator 2 on VHS and I was real young. I was like under 10 years old. I don't remember, but I was so thrilled to just watch Terminator 2 over and over again. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's just, it's one of those things. I just watched a lot of movies as a kid. I never really realized it until I grew up and I realized like, Oh, I saw so many things when I was younger. I've watched Tremors 2 a million times and stuff. 
I hated horror movies as okay. a kid. Like Trimmer, Trimmers 2, I loved it, but that, I, that didn't really count as a horror movie for me. But we were six or seven years old. I was across the street at my buddy's house, and uh, we watched it. And we got the two VHS set, the Tim Curry one. Mm-hmm. Not, obviously not, not the one from two years ago, because that would make me nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we watched the first tape at like 10 at night and then everyone else went to bed and I was just sitting awake in a dark room with my friends all asleep around me, petrified, trying to like avoid having a panic attack, wondering if I could walk home from their house to get home to like my parents where I'd feel safer and sleep. And it was a really, really rough night for me. I remember it specifically and having sleep problems after that for a a good chunk of time. So, um... I hated horror movies because of it, and I I avoided them like the plague until I was pretty far into my teenage years. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when I started to come back around to them. I remember the first... It's like the first two experiences I had where I'm like, okay, I think I might be a horror fan now, was I worked up the courage to see the Dawn of the Dead remake in theaters with my friends. Right in, uh, what was it, 2005? Right around there, so mm-hmm. I think I was about 18 or so, okay. and had so much fun. It was scary, but that movie writes that really good line of scary plus action plus humor, and it's a nice blend of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I watched that, and then I also played The Thing, the video game that came out around that time. It was an adaptation of the movie. I was like, well, if, I, if I'm if i into this game, I should probably see the movie. And... Uh, that was like basically when Kurt Russell became one of my idols. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's great. So, yeah, when I was like 20 years old, I was watching The Thing with the DVD commentary. Carpenter and Kurt Russell smoking cigarettes, hanging out, mm-hmm. watching the movie together. And uh, Kurt Russell mentioned like, oh, yeah, I think I, I think I grew my beard for a year for this movie. And for some reason, me and my immature 20-year-old brain was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm not going to shave again for a year. And I did it, but my beard wasn't fully mature at the time. So it just came in like curly and kind of Amish look. It was a yes. real bad look. Real, real bad look. There's some... I also shaved my head bald for a little bit during this time. There's some weird photos of me when I was 20, 21 years old. It's a you very special... Like threatening looking, intimidating there. Oh, no, I was, I, this is the funny thing. I looked terrifying. I'd wear death metal shirts with a bald head and a big beard, and I was like 240 pounds. I was real fat at the time. And yet I was like, why don't people like me? Why do not Why do people avoid me? <laughs> you idiot. What are you thinking? You look like a bouncer at the skankiest club in town. <laughs> I was, it was just like... Oh, yeah, but I want somebody to see that, like, underneath there's, like, a really nice guy. It's just stupid bullshit that you're yeah. immature, you know? <laughs> I, I realized later on, like, oh, you know, you get a lot further just being nice to people than being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> More flies with honey, et cetera, et cetera. That is very true. That is very true. So did you grow up on movies as a kid, or how yeah, how'd I, you get into it? I was an only child. And so, um, like my, the first thing that I remember actually is watching Twilight Zone with my dad. Uh, so, you know, not movies per se, but definitely media and watching the behind the scenes, uh, making of the Michael Jackson's thriller video, which is fantastic and got me interested even early on, like, how do they make these things and how do they design them? Um, and I remember I went and saw uh, E.T. very early on, and my parents actually rented a, a Betamax player at the time. They borrowed it from the library, and we'd borrow tapes, and we'd have it for like a week at a time. And they had the, um, uh, the Disney, it was a double feature of uh, Mr. Toad and then Ichabod Crane, the Sleepy oh, yeah. Hollow. And yeah, I those watched are two classics. Yes, I would watch the Sleepy Hollow one over and over, like all week, like on repeat. Um, and then we lived with my grandparents at the time, and I would often stay up late watching like the late movie on WGN. Um, so 
that kind of stuff was just always sort of ingrained from a very early age in my, you know, I didn't have anybody else to play with. So I, I have sit there and be babysat by the TV. That's awesome. I, I have two older sisters. They're six and nine years older than me. And mm-hmm. they weren't through them. I was more exposed to like the MTV side of music, like listening to stone temple pilots and green day as like a seven or eight year old stuff, right. like that, which was, which was really cool. I'm grateful for but with it's funny you said ET. <clears throat> I have two very specific memories from ET, and one is not my memory. It's my, it's like the family story of, I was a kid, and we were about to have dinner, and my mom said, "Oh, why don't you lead the, why don't you lead the blessing, the grace, or whatever?" And so I said, "Dear God, thank you for the family, and for this food, and God bless the ET tape." <laughs> <laughs> I was obsessed with it. I watched it so much, I guess, as a kid. I don't really remember. And then when I was about 10 or 11, I remember this. We had some house, some like house guests over, some other family, and they had some kids. And so we were all watching E.T. And I had a stomach ache. And so my mom's like, oh, here, take this Tums. But I didn't want to chew it because it was like a big wafer looking thing. And it just tasted gross. So I decided I was just going to swallow it like a pill. Oh, and it, it, it only made it like halfway down and then it just kind of got stuck and so i ended up throwing up in the sink like a tums pill and stuff as et is playing and now i cannot <laughs> shake this memory like anytime anybody brings up et i just think of being nauseous over the sink you just have this sense memory of a, a chalky tablet stuck in your throat yeah, so it's one of those things where I feel like I need to watch E.T. again when I'm feeling really good to try to erase that. Well, that's one of the coolest things um, for me was last summer. Uh, I mean, all the theaters were shut down, but the drive-ins were still open. And I took my, uh, she was then, she was 14-year-old daughter, to go see E.T. and Back to the Future as a double feature at the at our closest drive-in here in town. Uh, and that was her first time watching E.T. And that was one of those things that it's like, you know, I, I get to pass on a baton to the next generation. It was very cool for me. I have trouble revisiting certain movies like that from childhood. It it just brings up a really weird response for me. Like I could watch Back to the Future today just fine. But mm-hmm. I feel like if I watched E.T., emotionally, I would have some kind of lost childhood feeling as i watched it i don't know i can't quite explain it but i don't go i don't often go back to those real child era movies that i was really into i don't i don't watch i was kind of into disney as a kid i guess the animated stuff but i don't as an adult i have not gone back to any of that stuff i don't know if i just don't have the nostalgia for it versus the nostalgia i have for things when i was 10 or 11 or 12 years old and i think maybe memories are a little bit more ingrained in me and so Mm -hmm. that way i'm able to experience them differently i don't know why that is that's um it's interesting like for me the the original disney stuff like i grew up in the era when it was really the lull before uh like little mermaid and lion king and beauty and the beast came back out and kind of revitalized disney so, yeah, because between between like the fifties or sixties and the eighties, there was not much at all, right? They were they put out a decent amount, but for a while there was definitely, um, you know, they had a lack of quality. I think Robin Hood kind of falls maybe in that era. If you watch it now, the uh, the animation isn't nearly as clean on stuff like that um, as it was on the earlier things, and that was when they were really spent a lot of time. Um, and you can find all these comparisons where they barred animation from earlier and would just trace over it uh, for sequences. The uh, There's a sequence with, with the Baloo and Mowgli from the Jungle Book that they recreated basically in Robin Hood, I think. Uh, but yeah, Disney wasn't quite the juggernaut. I mean, definitely that it is now with you know Disney Plus <laughs> and everything owning the entire world. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so for me especially, like, and I've noticed this over my being a child myself, and then having kids, and now having a stepchild who's who's five. Um, 
there is more and more media geared towards kids uh, as time goes on. In the early 80s, like E.T. was the closest you would get to something actually for kids, which is still like an actual movie, you know, and it adheres to all of the normal rules of storytelling <laughs> that an actual movie does. And uh, by the time that I was a teenager, I noticed there was a lot more uh, like veggie tales and things like that starting to come around, that it was more okay to be into little kid stuff. And that just didn't exist when I was a kid. That's why, like, from early on, um, I was also in middle school the first time I watched Citizen Kane because I was that pretentious asshole. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I I think I saw Citizen Kane referenced in The Simpsons or something, and yeah, I, I knew it as a reference for years before I actually knew what the movie was or what it was supposed to represent in the history of film and all that sort of stuff. It was just it was just one of those common parlance phrases you hear of oh citizen kane is supposed to be good you know yeah uh, so yeah growing up i watched a lot of <clears throat> i didn't I, I i watched some like x-men cartoons and stuff like that but mm -hmm. i don't know i feel like i watched a lot of adult movies like right. days of days of thunder and top gun and stuff like that like th those were more of the things i was into is just um you know, action movies. I, I was just talking with um, my friend yesterday. We both have watched Under Siege in the past week, which was a really <laughs> weird coincidence. <laughs> so we were talking about that. And uh, just the, that was like, the I swear, those were like the first boobs I ever saw was in Under Siege when she oh, pops yeah. out of the birthday cake. <laughs> so like, I remember like little kid me being like, wait, you, they can't. Oh, they did. <laughs> <laughs> but speak, I forgot that Tommy Lee Jones is in that movie. I just remember like Steven Seagal and Erica Leniak. Uh, but Tommy Lee Jones is hamming it up so hard. And then he's there with uh, Gary Busey and Call Meany all together mm -hmm. in one frame, all hacking it up together. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's a it's a shitty movie, but they elevate it with a ton of campiness, you know? That's one I haven't seen in years and years. I probably it's, should it's, revisit it. It's ridiculous time. because you can already see Seagal taking himself so seriously, and then you oh, just yeah. know after that movie came out, he completely bought into the character. Seagal is like, "Oh, I am Casey Ryback now. I, I am the martial arts master." It just—it's ridiculous. That's Seagal was one of my mom's guys, like one of the guys that you know, she had a crush on or whatever back in the early days. Um, Seagal and Mel Gibson. So I don't know what that says about her choice in men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Mel Gibson was a real popular choice for a while. Yes. Back, you know, when in... Mel Gibson still had an Australian accent, he seemed like a yeah. pretty good dude. There was a good 15 or 20 years there where he was fairly unimpeachable. Right up until... Was it... Did Braveheart break Mel Gibson? Or was it... I feel like the success of Braveheart broke his brain. Mm -hmm. And the, it was nothing was ever the same after that because he started to take himself way too seriously and started to hate Jewish people way too much. <laughs> <laughs> but then he did the, the Patriot, which was basically like an American remake of Braveheart. And right. as a kid, I was like, oh, this is good. And as an adult, I'm like, oh, no, this is not very good. <laughs> also, I read, have you ever read novelizations of movies? I read the novelization of The Patriot as a kid. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. That seems like a weird rabbit hole to go down. It was. It was. I just remember being in like seventh grade, like, I liked that movie, I bet I could like glean more from the book. And it was, I'd never realized that movies had novelizations before. So I think I thought right. that the movie was based on the book. And so the book would teach me more stuff when in fact the book is based on the movie. And so it's just rehashing everything from the movie without giving me anything more. That's, um, I read the, uh, it was Total Recall. Uh, novelization. How was from, that? I mean, it was the movie. It was... Uh, I don't remember if in that one because... 
I, there was a weird period. Uh, I remember specifically with Dracula, I had both the original book and then the novelization based on Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was the weirdest thing because it's the same damn story. <laughs> it's just like you had someone rewrite it and send it out again. And I think the Total Recall might have been something like that because I think it was maybe based on a Piers Anthony novel to begin with or he did the novelization or something, but it was a weird kind of mishmash. Uh, but I do remember the book was kind of sexy. I do remember that. Yeah, I feel like you could say that about anything related to Verhoeven. It's always going to oh, have yeah. some kind of sexiness in it, you know? Yep. Also, I really liked, I watched the documentary about um, Showgirls. I've never actually seen Showgirls, but the, docu <laughs> the documentary, You Don't Know Me, uh, was uh -huh. really good. I enjoyed oh, it a nice. lot. Um, Josh, do you regret having watched anything? Like, you wish you could unsee a movie? Huh. Like, something that, uh, like Martyrs or... Um... Yeah, I, that was kind of something that's so extreme or whatever, something that caused you enough trauma or whatever that you <laughs> you regret having seen it at all? I don't think so. I recently... Um, there was uh, a graphic going around of the disturbing movie Iceberg. Um, and at the top of the iceberg is like kind of your standard horror films. And then you get into some exploitation stuff. And then you get into the really gross stuff down at the bottom. Um, and I felt good about myself that most of the really gross stuff I didn't even know. With as many movies as I watch, a lot of the gross, like, bottom of the iceberg kind of things we're still outside of my realm of, of knowledge. So I haven't delved into most of that stuff. I didn't watch Faces of Death um, or any of those things. Uh, I had cousins and uh, uncles who definitely did. And I know that stuff was around when I was a kid, but I never never got into it. I got it. I was... Fake horror is definitely okay. When it skirts the line, it makes me feel gross. I don't like it anymore. And I check out. Yeah, I hear you. Um... I'm 34 now, but in my early 20s, I was, I don't know, I, I don't know if I was just trying to push myself for who knows what reason, but I used to look up lists of, like, the most disturbing horror films ever, and it was usually right. stuff like Martyrs or The Men Behind the Sun. I never watched that one, but stuff like that. Um, and then I'd see other things for listing for, like, the August whatever those fake snuff films are. Okay. I don't, it's just like, I have no interest in that. And, um, same with like cannibal Holocaust. Fuck that movie. Um, I refuse to watch it. I hate that they killed a real snake in Friday the 13th part one. Yes. Um, same here. I, I think there's zero excuse to harm anything for the sake of art. Yes. So I, I, ref I, I just refuse to, take any part and stuff like that actually thinking about it there was a movie that i watched uh, fairly recently during a marathon with some of my friends um there's a movie called uh the prophet i believe um french movie no the un prophet it yeah wasn't that's that what one. I, okay because i've seen that, that one and that one that one's really good yeah well, that movie was great um it was, there was two movies from the same year with the same title. Um, and God, I'm thinking it wasn't The Prophet. Um, oh, The Astrologer. That's what it was called. Uh, there was two movies, both from 1975, called The Astrologer. Um, and one of them has been this long-lost classic, I think, that... Um, by classic, I'm putting that in quotes. I think uh, the American Genre Film Archive put it back out this year, and that's how we watched it. Um, but the other one, from 1975, directed by James Glickenhaus, um, used actual footage of, like, war footage, um, like bodies and burned by napalm and stuff like that in the middle of the film. Um and I found that real gross, and there was no no call for that. Did you see the Three Bloods? 
Oh, the five bloods? Spike Lee. No, yeah, excuse me. The Spike Lee. No, I haven't. He uses some <clears throat> flash cuts of real-life victims from war, and it's very shocking. I think it's used appropriately because they are discussing the heinous things that happened during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's still it's extremely hard to see and harrowing. Um, the only like the most the most fucked up thing I've watched ever. Um, I went to Colorado for school for a little bit, and there's a guy named Stan Brackage there who's he mm-hmm. was a professor there before I went there, and he's pretty well known in like the experimental film um, genre. And he did one called The Act of Seeing Through One's Own Eyes, which is he just went to a um, a morgue, basically, and filmed. It's a completely silent film, no sound whatsoever, and he just filmed autopsies being performed. Oh, and it's, it's about 25 minutes long, and it's, uh, it's interesting because it starts absolutely grotesque and mortifying, but then after about 10 minutes of it, you kind of get past that, and then it's just the look like knowing that what you're seeing is also what's going on inside of you, right. and you have this system is inside you too. And it's really fucked up. I don't recommend anyone <laughs> watch it, but but it was interesting. I don't I don't regret having watched it. I wouldn't do it again anytime soon. But it was it was interesting. So. I had a question for you, mm-hmm. and this is because it's one of my personal kind of little things. Um, how do you feel about uh, the Oscars and the Golden Globes, uh, the awards shows for, for movies or art in general? Um, I think it's a nice thing that should always be taken with a grain of salt. I don't think anyone should ever put any importance on it. I think it's a nice thing if you are nominated, but um, I also have major problems with, you know, their their lack of scope, how narrow-minded they are of what they will choose to watch, what they'll choose to nominate. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been countless real small performances in horror movies and stuff that have been amazing over the years, and they always, they the Academy seems to, like, rest on their laurels of, like, yeah, but that one year we nominated Silence of the Lambs. And it's like, right. okay, you did that once 30 years ago. Like, come yep. on, man. Even now with their expanding the scope to to 10 movies, it's just annoying that like, oh, the only time we'll acknowledge horror now is when it's presented through a Jordan Peele-esque uh, uh, breakdown of society and class right. structure and things. It's like... Yeah, Jordan Peele's great. I'm really happy with what he's done for the genre. I'm not crazy about his movies, but I think he's solid, and I'm really happy with him bringing legitimacy to the genre. But he's not the only one out here, gang. You know, yeah. he's sweet. now especially like, God, there, there's that remake of Candyman coming out, and it says, from the producer of Get Out. It's like, dude, I don't give a shit who's producing this movie. Tell me who wrote it or who directed it. Uh, right. I don't ever tell me who from the producers of that gives me nothing. So that, <laughs> that really bugs me with shit like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the stuff with the, I don't know, I guess, what is it? The, the Hollywood foreign press basically has dissolved or something. <laughs> They've had a complete meltdown and yeah, I don't know, man, I, the golden globes, have never been relevant and then they had ricky Gervais, which was like fun for one year and then they just kept bringing him back and he kept just doing the same jokes uh, i used to love ricky and now i he, i can't stand him <laughs> he's he's like he went from being one of my favorite to one of my least favorite people in about a decade and it's it's quite amazing to to go back and look at that arc of change that he experienced but yeah, anyways, I, that was a long, long answer. How do you feel about award shows? Um, I basically have no use for them. Um, I, I think it's kind of a silly concept. I do agree that it's nice if you're nominated. And, um, you know, it's good to, like, celebrate each other and have some sort of camaraderie around that. But I definitely think that their scope is too limited. 
and I personally know next to nothing about Oscar history. Um, you know, who won what awards? It's like occasionally a little factoid will will stick in my in my brain, but for the most part, it's um, a blank slate when it comes to that stuff because I just don't find it interesting. I don't even go to like Oscar parties. I've had friends who put on, um, you know, shindigs whenever there's an award show. Um, and I don't really go and get down with that kind of thing. Did it's, you watch the Oscars as a kid? Uh, a little bit. The last time that I watched was when, uh, Elliot Smith performed, uh, his song from Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> so that was the last <laughs> Oscars that I've okay. watched. So, so Ben Affleck was a child the last time you watched. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Um, they seem to be less and less relevant, which is fine with me. Uh, yeah. I'm totally cool with that. Um, what's the most scared you've been in a theater? <clears throat> Ooh. Maybe uh, watching... Uh, we watched Night of the Living Dead here at the Belcourt Theater several years ago. And um, sometime during the the third act of it uh the film broke and the entire theater went black and it was just like kind of a testament to how well the movie had worked up until that point that everyone started screaming <laughs> when the when the lights went out and it was pretty great that sounds really fun yeah for me it was i saw um paranormal activity at a midnight showing back when it was in like six or eight theaters across the country and you had to do oh, yeah. that weird voting thing online um i just I, I was reading bloody disgusting at the time and one of the reviewers that i liked on their site just said go see it don't read anything about it you know just go in blind and so i did that for a midnight showing and the tension was palpable in that mm -hmm. theater it was a fully packed audience at midnight and every single time it would cut to that static night shot, you could feel every single person like kind of pull their knees in, bring their arms a little bit tighter, like just cover themselves up and just people gasping. And oh, man, it was scary. It was it was truly scary that I the other thing about that movie that I don't I don't think people give it credit for, especially if you watch it on the small screen was the first time watching that in a theater experience the screen is so big that you don't know where the scare is going to come from in those static <laughs> shots so you're looking at oh, the God. dark hallway you're looking under the bed you're looking in the right side you're looking at the closet but you cannot see all of these things at once so as an audience you know you can hear that sound that droning bass build up when the the ghost or whatever is nearby and you know something's coming and so it's just that tension of like fuck Fuck, fuck, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> it was awesome. I have not had I haven't had that experience too many times. Um I'm also curious what's what's the scariest movie you've just watched just in general? What's what's the movie that creeped you out and got under your skin? Doesn't have to be a theatrical experience. Um Well going back for a second, I was gonna also mention the descent when you started talking about people pulling their legs up into their chair. The first time I saw The Descent in the theater uh, was at a preview screening, and there wasn't very many of us in the audience. Um, but I definitely had that, like, when you hear the creepy crawly sounds and you can't quite see them yet, uh, but the crawlers are out there, I definitely, like, curled up into a ball <laughs> in, I am in my theater seat. I am so jealous of you because I didn't see that movie in theater <laughs> and it's one of my all-time favorite movies. I just think, oh yeah, as a horror movie goes... It doesn't get much better than that. I fucking love it so much. And <laughs> to have gotten that theater experience, oh, there's so many movies where it's like, God, how did I miss that? But for for one reason or another, you know, I know you can't see everything in theater, so you just got to let it go. Right. Um, the, yeah, go on. Uh, the Amityville Horror, uh, the original version, and then actually the remake, when I went and saw that... Um, there, it strikes a chord within me about like being a father, being responsible for a family. Um, that definitely 
sticks in my craw. It's one of those things that I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, especially the remake. It only worked for me because of the the situation that I'm in as you know, when I watched it as being a young father and having two kids who were like basically in cribs at that point in time and just that fear of, you know, losing control and hurting your family or letting something hurt your family. That's that a, got to me. That's a great answer. I remember watching that, the remake with my buddies in high school and the part where the kid goes to the bathroom to go pee and I was like, mm-hmm. it's like a flash cut to something standing right behind him i can't remember what but we all jumped and screamed when we saw that uh my answer is similar uh to yours session nine got under my skin and freaked me out in a way that i don't think was normal and i don't think most people experience that but for me it's i have short temper especially more growing up i've gotten better with it now but a lot of that movie is about when you're in that weakened state, if something can push you over the edge, what happens there and how awful things can happen. And mm-hmm. and then just the sound design, there's no score to that movie really. It's just a bunch of weird sound effects and weird ambient things. And Peter Mullen's performance, the Scottish guy, he's that's like that's a performance that I would have nominated for some kind of award. He is mm-hmm. incredible in that movie. Um Session 9 still creeps me out to this day, um, thinking about it. I love the location filmed, you know, at the actual in abandoned asylum in yeah. Massachusetts. Um, yeah, oh, it's such a good movie. But it's also one that I know if I recommended it to most people, they'd probably be, this is slow and dumb and not, <laughs> and not scary at all. But for me, it... I, there's moments that just gives me complete goosebumps across my whole body. Yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not often you get to say that about a David Caruso movie. <laughs> no, is what that and Jade? Is that what I'm that the uh, that's there's a isn't he was in some sexy one? Is that I think it's Jade, right? I don't remember. I feel bad now that I don't remember this off the top of my head. I think, but... I, think I was listening to How Did This Get Made or something, and they talked about Caruso leaving. He left, what was he on, NYPD Blue? He left some really successful TV show to try to be in movies, and it completely flopped, and then he ended up yes. going back to CSI and kind of re uh, reigniting his career there. Yes, it was Jade. I think that was the, the big one from 95. Oh, but he was also in Hudson Hawk, which uh, is an overlooked classic in my mind. So, I've never seen it. Ooh, that's it's probably horrible, in all honesty. But when I was a teenager, uh, when it came out, or I was probably about 11 or 12 when it came out, uh, Bruce Willis was about the coolest man in the, in the world. So him and Danny Aiello singing... Uh, would you rather be a fish? Just did something to me. Bruce Willis has disappointed me so much <laughs> in my life because I really love Bruce Willis. I thought Bruce Willis was wonderful. I thought he's charismatic. He can be funny. He can do some of the action stuff, but it's never like he's an action star. You know, like the whole nine yards I thought was really good. He did 16 blocks or whatever. Like that was as I recall, pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then about 12 years ago, he just said, fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to sit down in this chair and you can film me for 10 minutes a day and that's all you get. And otherwise, use right. my doubles, use use the back of my head and shoot my double or whatever. He's the most frustrating actor in the world now. And you see him on all these posters. And he's always just doing the same like sour candy Bruce Willis face. It's just... It's just a bummer now. He is. I, uh. It's he seems to have taken the um, uh, the opposite approach of Nick Cage because Nicholas Cage is being in all kinds of movies, and I feel like most of the time he's giving an actual performance. He's actually trying. He's out there doing his shtick. He's doing the Nick Cage thing, 
I love Nicholas Cage too. I love Nicholas Cage. Totally, yes. He could phone it in all Wonder the time, that. but the fact that and he's picking genre stuff and doing weird mm-hmm. shit and clearly the man's in a lot of debt or something <laughs> it's expensive <laughs> to own five castles or whatever he has and half of new orleans but uh but yeah you see a movie like mandy or color out of space or all these other things and he's he's always going for it and yes. i respect the hell out of him for it because he elevates everything even yep. if he elevates it into more of like a niche nick cage area where maybe you wanted the movie to play it a little more straight but he's excellent and um lord of uh i I love lord of horror that was one of those movies like 10 years ago i had it on dvd and watched it probably like six times over the span of three years or something so what is your and i think we talked about this a little bit the other day um in chat but what is your most overlooked movie genre? Oh, personally, uh, that I yes. have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we talked briefly, but I would say the two. I like musicals, but I don't like musicals. We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I would say, as I told you, I, I, film noir and westerns. I love mm-hmm. both of them, yet I've seen so little. Like, I've seen The Maltese Falcon, and I've seen Chinatown, and two or three other noirs probably and then with westerns i've seen sorry go ahead now you've you've seen blood simple now which is uh a a neo-noir and is credited with kicking off the 80s neo-noir i think i've seen a fair amount of neo-noir i Mm -hmm. haven't seen that too many of like uh, the dame came in she had four foot long legs and eyes that set my matchbook on fire and (laughs) 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 so that and then westerns like westerns i've only seen like tombstone 310 to yuma remake bone tomahawk unforgiven and the good the bad and the ugly i don't think i've seen any other westerns and but i love them they're awesome yeah so i want to see more of the spaghetti the sergio leone spaghetti western kind of era yes clint eastwood uh I'm really curious to see the Charles Bronson one because I've only seen Bronson in Death Wish 1, mm-hmm. Death Wish 2, <laughs> Death Wish 3, <laughs> Death Wish 4, <laughs> and Death Wish 5. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But outside of that, I haven't seen Bronson really in much of anything. I think I saw The Mechanic too, but I'm really curious. How did you put Charles Bronson, the guy who talks like this, into a Western doesn't i i need to see how they put those two pieces together it doesn't seem to match up in my head and he's actually in one of my favorite uh twilight zones as well which i didn't realize even until you know i was older and like put it together that it was the same guy from 30 years before or what or however long it was 20 years before uh he was in the death wish movies that he was in a twilight zone really yeah. I, that's Twilight Zone. I've only seen. I saw the movie, which was good. I I, I mainly recall the, um, the airplane scene with the little monster on the wing. Yep. yep. And um, and then the only Twilight Zone episode I can recall is the one where, someone's in a hospital and their face is all bandaged, and all the doctors yes. are talking about how horribly disfigured and mutilated they are. And, uh, That's uh, Eye of the Beholder. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it turns out that everyone else has pig faces and the woman who's mutilated just has a human face. That's a fun one. Yep. Uh, but uh, Twilight Zone is one of my favorite all-time pieces of media. Do you like... Did they remake that series? Well, I, I, I guess Jordan Peele did one like last year or two years ago or something. So... There was the original series, um, and then there was the Night Gallery, which is kind of a spinoff, uh, Twilight Zone-esque type stuff, but tended more towards horror um, that Rob Serling also had a part in, but he didn't write nearly as many episodes. Um, and then they did a series in the 80s um, that I don't think they had a host for. They did one in the early 2000s where Forrest Whitaker was the host. Um 
and everything is real. I think um, somebody from Corn did the redid the theme song for it, like to give you an idea of how early two thousands it was. <laughs> uh, it definitely sits in a pocket there. Yeah, and then the Jordan Peele one lasted two seasons. Gotcha. Uh, did, yep. Have you ever seen Tales from the Unexpected? It's an English one, basically English Twilight Zone. Okay. Anyways, I've never seen it, but uh, I have a I have a Carl Pilkington addiction, and I'm not afraid to admit it. It's a real <laughs> it's a real problem. It's a real condition. It'll be in the DSM five whenever they publish it. Uh, <laughs> but he talks about one episode where there's a woman in prison, and she falls in love with her guard, and the guard says, "All right, I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to get you out of here. Uh, when uh, we're going to pretend that you're dead." And then they'll, we'll put you in a coffin and roll you out. Anyways, it ends up that somebody dies and then she lights a lighter to see who she's there in the coffin with waiting for her guard boyfriend to get her out. And it turns out that right. the guard boyfriend had died and he was in the coffin with her. And so she was buried alive. Dun, 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 dun. That, stuff like that. I love those little 24 minute parables. Yes. <laughs> Which... Uh, a lot of the Twilight Zone. Looking up Tales of the Unexpected here, uh, that thing ran for nine years. And it was created by Roald Dahl, which that seems insane to me. Yeah, probably a lot of anti-Semitic episodes in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever listened to the Dead Authors podcast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's Paul F. Tompkins as, uh, oh, God, who's the guy? I'm blanking on his name. The guy who wrote Time Machine? H.G. Uh, Wells. Thank you. As H.G. Wells goes back in time to bring back dead authors, and he brings back Roald Dahl, played by Ben Schwartz. And it's great because it's 45 minutes of Ben Schwartz talking about, like, fantasy and tales and growing up in England and all this shit. And then they get to the audience Q&A, and someone asks Ben Schwartz, uh, can you explain some of your anti-Semitic beliefs or whatever? <laughs> and you hear Ben Schwartz <laughs> learning on stage that Roald Dahl is an anti-Semite, and then he's trying <laughs> in character, he has to then cope with the fact that one of his childhood heroes is an anti-Semite, and he learns it in character. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's a great moment. <laughs> I love that podcast, though. The best one for me is, uh, Andy Daly as F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's extremely drunk, mm -hmm. and someone else playing James Joyce, and the two of them together okay. on stage with Andy Daly just pretending to be the most belligerent drunk asshole on the planet, which it sounds like F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of was. <laughs> the uh, Tales of the Unexpected reminds me of... Uh, have you ever seen any of the the BBC Christmas ghost stories that they do? No. Yeah. Um, I don't know how long they did this, um, but it's more of a tradition in England that, you know, like uh, a Christmas carol is technically a ghost story. You got the, the three spirits that visit Scrooge and whatnot. Um, but they did these, um, the first Four or five of them were from M.R. James stories. Uh, and I've watched those during um, some of my marathons as well. Uh, and you can find them in different places. There's, I think there's DVDs of them now. Um, but it's kind of a cool thing for, you know, kind of counter-programming at Christmas, a little ghost story. And they're very much in that same vein where there's some kind of twist uh, at the end that gets you. That sounds fun. I remember yeah. Scrooged terrified me as a kid. Scrooged? Oh, yeah. The scene with Scrooged, uh, I can't, there's some gross thing. I can't remember if there's like some kind of decaying zombie or skeleton kind of thing that attacks Bill Murray at one mm -hmm. point. But I, uh, the thing yeah. that really stuck with me is Bill Murray getting cremated and he's like still oh, yes. alive in the coffin. Yikes. As a kid watching that, that was that was one of those things that left a scar on my brain. <laughs> that always made me think of the, um, the music video for we didn't start the fire, uh, which starts in the fifties, I think, you know, as the song 
goes along in the decades and then winds up in the future. Um, and it's this kitchen set in the middle of a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And for some reason that like very eighties modern look, um, permeated both of those things. And that also just the, the beginning of that music video was so cozy and I'm like, Oh, this is great. It looks like the wonder years. And by the time you get to the end of it, it's like, mad max or something and it's horrifying that's awesome i've never seen that video before that is making me think similarly of the terminator 2 scene where sarah's dream <laughs> when the playground when la gets nuked in the playground and she's standing against the fence and screaming for the kids and holy shit i'm getting like terrified childhood goosebumps right now just thinking about that <laughs> scene <laughs> like there's some there's some real movie trauma still ingrained up here, and I think that's why I watch so many horror movies, is just to try to like work through all of this shit that I've been exposed to over the years, or was exposed to at too young of an age, you know? Right. So, we both have um, accounts on Letterboxd. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I, I didn't know about Letterboxd. I was telling you I used to use IMDB way back in the day. Yeah. Um, but I think going forward, um, I've been pretty good about keeping up on there. I've been, I've had a letterbox for, uh, it looks like eight years now. Um, I've gone through phases where I kind of forget to log stuff. Um, but the last couple of years I've been pretty consistent. Um, last year I actually kept a log of everything that I watched, including like television shows and, um, all the books that I read and, Early on in the year, I went to a couple plays and kept those in my log as well. I, it was modeled after Steven Soderbergh's log of everything that he watches and reads during a year. Um, and I have to say, at January 1st this year, the first time that I watched something and didn't have to write it down in an extra spreadsheet was really freeing. It was really nice. That sounds like too much. I love logging the movies that I watch just because it's. I watch so many movies, it's easy for me to forget when somebody asks me, Oh, what have you watched recently? It's good. If you ask me that question, it's like a concrete wall drops down in my brain. And so I can I can think of the past two movies I've seen and nothing else. And so I'm just like, oh, well, Sleepaway Camp 2 was pretty good. <laughs> so I need I need that something like Letterboxd to help me remember all the all the things I've watched and stuff. So I love it. Um, but yeah, if you guys want, you can follow me at Sean of the Bread, S-E-A-N on letterbox uh, i am at spartacus s-p-a-r-t-i-c-k-e-s um oh, that's, that's your... clever josh i that's... know someone gave me that nickname in college and it, wow it stuck. that's a really good one yeah do you have your profile filled out do you have your favorite films selected on letterboxd or not no i didn't know that was a thing oh yeah uh, you can do your top four which mine have stayed pretty stagnant. I might have to revisit these sometime, but I've got uh, Seven Samurai, Cool Hand Luke, Fargo, and All That Jazz as my top four. I've only seen Fargo. I, uh, okay. Seven Samurai is one of those shame marks for me. Same with Cool Hand Luke. Those are both like mm -hmm. movies I'm ashamed to have not have seen. And then the last one, All That Jazz, I, I, I know nothing about that. Yeah, um, I, I think you would like it, even though it's it, it's kind it's not really a musical, um, but it's based around someone staging a musical, which is weird. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites. I considered it for um, one of our double features when we were talking about on Dustin's podcast the other day. Or actually, no, did I choose it? I just think it's talk about it. Yeah, I had to give you. Oh, man, that's going to be hard. Top four in no particular order. Mm -hmm. Oh, baby. <laughs> Probably going to be a... Like... <laughs> oh, this is so hard. Uh... I'm going to say, like... Old boy. The thing. God, I... <sighs> I'm terrified, but I might have to say Master and Commander. That movie just keeps moving up, 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 up for me. I love it so much. Okay. 
Oh, and the fourth one. Um... God help me, stalker, old boy, thing. It might... I want to say stalker, but that's not quite true, because I don't think I could go back and rewatch stalker again and again, you know? Right. Uh, what's that fourth slot going to be? This, is, this question is killing me, Josh. I can't believe you've done this to me. <laughs> this is really rude of you to ask this. Um, hold on. You're going to have to edit this out for a second. <laughs> okay. Sort. Oh, wait, hold on. I should do this on my computer. Letterboxd. God, what is it? What is it, Josh? <laughs> it's rough. It is hard coming up with these, even though, like, mine were, have been cemented in there for the same length of time. It feels like I should find something else to put up there. All right. I'm looking at my letterbox. That's beeping behind me. This is impossible. <laughs> I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it because it's true. Okay. And this movie sticks in my head in a way that's absurd and irrational and it doesn't make sense. And it's not a perfect movie, but God help me. I can't escape it. Everyone knows what it's going to be. Ravenous, the 1999 Ooh. cannibal thriller that's set in the West, the Sierras during westward expansion in the United States. God help me, I just can't quit that movie, no matter how hard I try. The soundtrack is in my head, the acting's in my head, there's little moments of comedy, everyone's nailing it. Ugh. I, I can't... Something about that movie's just dialed into my brain, where the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, that was good. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, that was really, really good. And now I can't stop thinking about it. And I haven't watched that, I... I think since probably 99 or 2000. It's weird. Which I feel you know, bad about. That director, um, let me get her name. It was directed by Antonia Bird, and she's like an English um, play director. She typically worked in theater, and I think that was one of her very, very few films she ever did. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's awesome, and it's weird, but... Guy Pierce, it's my favorite Guy Pierce role by far. I think he's a good actor, but he hasn't had that many great characters. But Robert Carlyle is so charismatic, so wonderful in that movie. Love it. Fantastic. My, See, sorry, my oven is. I haven't seen that in a long my time. My oven's beeping okay. at me. One, one second. Sorry. Edit point. Edit point. Edit 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 point. Okay. I'm back. Sorry. You haven't seen it in a okay, long time. Cool. So I haven't seen it in a long time, but I can definitely get get behind your support of it. I think that that's a, it's a bold choice. Thank you. I I know like a, a month from now, if you tell me what four movies I chose, I'm like, what? I, I, put, <laughs> I put what on my top four list? But for, for now, that's what I got for you, bud. I love it. Um... Josh, I got one more question for you, and I think it might be a good time to wrap this up. Okay. If there was one director that you could tail during one of his movies, or her movies, which one would it be? Like if you, let's say, you could hang out with Hitchcock on Psycho, or, you know, whatever, and just kind of right. shadow them during that production. Okay, so this is oddly easy, but I'm going to kind of cheat um, because I would say that I would want to be able to shadow uh, Steven Soderbergh when he was making the show The Nick. And you could pick any episode if I, if I have to narrow it down to like one short production. But the fact that he would direct and operate camera and act as cinematographer and 
on the way home, he would edit the dailies so that people could watch what they were doing the next morning. Um, and a lot of times he would go to a movie or go to a play or something in the evening. Uh, I read this profile about him at that point in time, and the crew was worried about him because he was working himself so ragged. Um, but he was also operating the camera and like jumping down off these cranes and doing all this kind of crazy shit. And they were worried that he was going to like injure himself and then they would have no creative team left because he was everybody on the creative team, basically on the behind the camera side. So what's the show called? The, that, the, the Nick, the Nick it's uh, set in the early 1900s around the time that electricity is first coming in to New York city. It follows Clive Owen as um, a surgeon who's doing kind of all these cutting edge techniques um, and sort of like the social upheaval that happens around this one hospital uh, and the little travails that happen in it. Uh, Clive Owen is fantastic. Um, uh, Eve Hewson, who is Bono's daughter in the only role that I've seen her play uh, is great as one of the nurses. Um and uh, I think Andre Holland plays a doctor who's coming into the hospital for the first time. Um, he's the first black surgeon that they're letting work at this hospital. And there's a lot of um, turmoil around that. And it's really good. When, when was the show around? Um, 2014, 2015, I think. It's only two seasons. Oh, it's recent. There's 20 episodes of it. Yeah. Oh, cool. It's really good. Um, I just started rewatching it, um, and it's been one that's stuck in my head. I watched it when it first came out and read all the profiles. Steven Soderbergh is kind of one of my dudes. Um, what else has he? You know, he I did. Pick... Sorry, he did eight millimeter. No, that was no. That's the other guy. I get Soderbergh and what's the other guy's name? Who did eight millimeter? It's it's another S name. Uh, Schumacher, Joel Schumacher. I get oh, Schumacher, Schumacher and Soderbergh mixed up in my head all the time. Okay, Soderbergh did uh, Sex Lies and Videotape. Was his first movie? Never seen it. Oh, that's a good one. He kind of operated in indie land for a while until ninety eight, ninety nine, when he came out with Out of Sight. The Limey, Aaron Brockovich, and Traffic within like two years. Oh, The Limey. Uh, that was a weird movie. I saw that recently. Yes. Yeah. That one, The Limey has some of the weirdest editing I've ever seen in it. Really cool. Yep. Really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the movie, I was kind of, eh, a little lukewarm on, but the editing was bizarre in a really awesome way. Yeah. Um, which he basically took that from... There's a movie called Point Blank starring Lee Marvin from uh, the late 60s, maybe, that um, has a lot of that kind of elliptical, circular editing where you come back to the same scenes over and over mm -hmm. again. Um, and Soderbergh actually wound up doing the commentary track for Point Blank as well because it was one of his inspirations for the line. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Yep. Uh, looking at the rest of his stuff, I've seen Contagion traffic it's like i've seen a bunch of his movies once i think i even saw the solaris remake a long time ago even though i've never seen the original uh mm -hmm. yeah so I, i've seen a lot of his stuff but i guess only once um for me i think following george miller around on mad max on any of the mad maxes but particularly fury road would be Okay. one hell of an experience just to be a fly on the wall of that set and to just get to be around that group of creatives doing something with that much passion and driving around in the desert and having acrobatic aerial people and a guy with a giant stack of amplifiers and guitar like <laughs> I, I don't think i'm going to hang out with george miller as much as i am just going to watch the spectacle of that production you know uh and actually, that ties up pretty nicely because there's a Soderbergh quote um, about Mad Max Fury Road um, where he talks about the fact that he's amazed that nobody died. Uh, 
And he says, he says, I couldn't direct 30 seconds of that. I'd put a gun in my mouth. <laughs> I don't understand how George Miller does it. Uh, it's my job to understand it. And I don't understand how they're still not shooting that film. And I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. No, <laughs> Which I think is pretty great. Seeing that movie in theater, the spectacle was incredible. But I knew it was a lot practical, but it's still kind of questioning what what's real and what's what's not or what what has a ton of like safety harnesses like what what's been edited out of this and then i watched the behind the scenes featurettes i was like oh aside from like some background matte painting-esque stuff and some color palette no it's pretty much exactly what they got in camera is what you see in the movie (laughs) unbelievable man it's terrifying i can't wait i cannot wait for furiosa i'm so excited for that there's some of that background uh, footage, behind the scenes stuff, watching um, when the truck crashes in the canyon and it flips over and pieces go everywhere. And it's like, oh, they CG'd in one wall of the canyon. The truck flying all over the, all over the place was real. And that to me is, I'm like, that's terrifying. How could you even begin to calculate what you would want to see in the film and then build a rig that would do that. And I, I believe that was the one where like, the truck slid right, right up to the camera. The stunt driver mm-hmm. perfectly placed it. And yeah. yeah, I think that was just a blessed production. I I don't know how else to describe how well that movie came together other than it's just some kind of miracle. I am 100% with you on that. I also it, love it's... I love the misnomer of calling it Mad Max. <laughs> it's he's yeah. he he has very little to do with any of it, but as it's, I yeah. loved it. Mad Max witnesses Furiosa be a badass. That's pretty much what happened. <laughs> basically, I mean, he helps out a bit, but uh it's basically her movie. Yeah. So well, I think well, cool. that will just about do it. I hope you listeners have a bit of an idea of who you're getting involved with here. And yeah, look excited to, to go on this journey of double features and see what I can figure out about the world and life and everything in between. <laughs> oh, yeah. The whole concept of the show is that we pick two movies that may or may not seem to fit together. And we start seeing some threads between them. And uh, we kind of break them both down from a variety of aspects. Oh, yeah, again, we forgot to introduce the show. God damn it, we can't do this. We're so bad at this. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, quickly, right, right before we end, it's a double feature podcast. There are no rules. We just pick two movies we want to watch, and then we'll talk about it. That's about it. Thanks, everyone. Yep. <laughs>